Hi, I'm Andy English. This is Headley Boys, a small town's big part in the Great War. I acknowledge that the town of Headley is in the traditional territory of the Samilkameen people. Episode 3. One of the biggest affairs Headley has seen. The first half of 1915 saw Headley seem to carry on very much as normal. Concerts and dances still went ahead. The societies and clubs still held meetings and rallies. Construction of new buildings carried on. It hardly seemed as if a great war was raging in Europe. The Gazette carried a little bit of war news, but mostly speculation and opinion. The Headley Ladies Sewing Circle, however, had started to make socks, pillows, scarves and balaclavas for the troops. And gifts of supplies and purses of money were made to the men when they left to enlist. The popular miner Charlie Saunders was given a fine old send-off at the railway station with the Headley Brass Band playing him aboard the train. The townsfolk of Headley were finding ways to contribute to the war effort but they would soon be contributing much more. Soon after news of Sid Edwards arrived in Headley, the men of the nickel plate mine decided amongst themselves to raise enough money to buy a machine gun, which they would present to the army to help the war effort. Machine gun funds had started in several towns. It was a way the communities felt they could contribute directly to hitting back at the enemy. The reality was that no machine guns could ever be purchased privately, but the idea was a popular one. The machine gun was the new weapon of this war, and so it had an almost glamorous element to it at this time. Many of the Headley soldiers found themselves serving in machine gun sections through volunteering or through being assigned, no doubt because of their trades as miners and engineers. These men could be expected to be able to control and handle a heavy machine gun, firing up to 600 rounds a minute. Charles Christiana, who had survived the fight at Festibut, wrote a few days after the battle to say how Sid Edwards had been killed by shellfire, and commented that, I am in the machine gun section, or as it is generally called, the suicide club. Our friend the enemy likes to find where the machine guns are, and then shell hell out of us. That's how poor Sid was caught. The machine gun fund was an instant success when it was launched mid-July. Nearly $1,000 was raised by the mine in just a few hours. Caught up with the enthusiasm, the stamp mill and town held a fundraiser four nights later, with just about everyone in town contributing, even the children with their 50-cent donations. They raised an impressive $1,200 that night, and still more donations came in. By the end of July, the sum of $3,714.05 had been raised, of which $2,981.70 went to the machine gun fund, the remaining $730.35 went to the Red Cross. This amount of money certainly caught the attention of other towns. The Summerland Review wrote, For a town of less than 400 souls to raise within a few weeks the sum of $3,500 for patriotic purposes is surely a unique record, and one that might be interpreted to give the impression that conditions there are good. The town of Headley, BC, including the staff of the Nickel Plate Mine, lately raised $3,000 for machine guns and $500 for the use of the Joint Red Cross and St John Ambulance Societies. But the Headley Gazette responded on September the 9th. No, review. Conditions at Headley are no better than usual. In fact, not nearly as good. We have our own problems of men out of work, etc., but we are learning to take the war seriously, 
and aim to impress our citizens with the responsibility which rests upon each individual. In addition to the above, you can add hundreds of dollars in cash and hundreds more in supplies, which the ladies have sent out and about which no mention has been made. There is hardly a household in Headley in which some work is not in progress designed for the men at the front. The Gazette could have also mentioned the imminent departure of a large number of Headley men and boys. For just two weeks earlier, one of the most remarkable events to happen in Headley throughout the war occurred, and the Gazette reported it in all of its detail. Headley Gazette, Thursday, August 26th, 1915. Headley again scores a record, sends 17 men to Vernon to train for active service, all passed rigid examination. Penticton taken by surprise, but gives boys a rousing reception. Headley has again come into the limelight in the matter of patriotism. This time she has given not money, but men. Seventeen of the finest young men in town have been to Penticton for examination, have been passed, sixteen have signed up and the seventeenth is now on his way to do so. Five have gone to Vernon and the others are subject to call between now and September the 9th. In addition, two others have also been examined and when they arrange about their affairs will also go. It began with A.W. Jack, whose picture appears on this page. He decided that the call of duty was stronger than the call of a job, or friends, or social position, or anything, and he forthwith resigned his position in the bank. Joe Rotherham had been thinking along the same lines. Then Jack Howe, who lacked some fingers on the right hand and for that reason thought he could not pass the medical test, also decided to give up his business. Frank Dolomore was also arranging for the transfer of the licence of the hotel from Wilkemin to Mr Bryant so that he could get away, and Jay Frame decided he too would hearken the call of duty. That made five. When Yorkie, MJ Mayer, heard of it, he decided to make the sixth. Saturday night there were six and the townspeople began to think of giving them a farewell of some kind. A smoker was arranged for Monday evening, in which there would be wrestling and boxing, songs and refreshments. But the ladies wanted to make some presentations to the men, and it was decided to invite them to come in for a short time, during which the part of the programme which appealed more particularly to the mere man would be omitted. G.P. Jones was appointed chairman and asked the recruits to take seats on the platform. Then the programme began, and everything went along very enthusiastically for a while. But when W.A. McLean was called on for a speech, things began to happen. In a clear, concise, plain-spoken manner, he began to tell of the occasion, and the men who were going, and what they were giving up, the war and why it was so necessary to fight, and what we were fighting for. Then he told them, if there was another man that wanted to join the bunch, he would arrange to take him over to Penticton in his car, so it would not cost him a cent. At the close of his speech, the band played The Maple Leaf Forever. This was too much for Bert Schubert. And he went up on the platform, and in a few words stated his position. He had tried to get into an aviation squad, but would have to have training in an aviation school, and that would cost him several hundred dollars, which he could not afford. So he was willing to waive that idea and go with the others. He was promptly given a seat on the platform. Evidently, his attitude was shared by some of the boys, because they too began to come, one or two at a time, until ten more decided after Schubert, making a total of seventeen. In the meantime, the ladies had come in and had made a presentation to each of the original six, but they said they would have the same kind of things for each man who wished to enlist. The programme was continued and the ladies joined in dancing between the numbers, giving the men permission to carry out their original smoke programme. There were songs and speeches, bouts and refreshments, and about 1.30 the programme was brought to a close, and those who wished to do so stayed to dance. 
It was one of the biggest affairs Headley has ever seen and will be remembered for years to come. There was nothing in the whole course of the evening tomorrow that was a very pleasant, enthusiastic and patriotic occasion. During the course of the evening, it was agreed that if any man wanted to go, those whom he was leaving behind would be taken care of to the extent of the salary which he was bringing in, and arrangements are being made for a committee to organise a fund for that purpose. Four auto owners volunteered to take the men over to Penticton free of cost, and arrangements were made for a trip to begin at 1pm Tuesday. At the appointed time, people gather at the bank corner. The school children were allowed an intermission that they might be present. The steam whistle at the mill gave its shrill warning, and the fire bell was rung. Auto horn sounded, and a band assembled. Tommy Rotherham was in hand and took some pictures of the recruits and the scene. Banners had been provided for each of the cars, re- reading Recruits from Headley, the Machine Gun Town. And shortly before two o'clock, the procession moved away amid a succession of cheering. Mrs. G.P. Jones, W.A. McLean, Dr. McEwen and George Riddle supplied their cars and each was crowded to the full capacity. The following is a list of men who went. A.W. Jack, E.J. Rotherham, Jack Howe, Frank Dollamore, J. Frame, M.J. Mayer, Bert Schubert, Les Robertson, E.W. Vans, T. Knowles, Roy Corrigan, Tom Corrigan, Rod McDoodle, Dan Devine, William Fulmore, Bobby Robertson, Blair Mills. In addition, H.G. Freeman and P. Murray went over for examination and will sign up when they have put their affairs in shape so they can leave with the minimum of loss. When the recruits reached Penticton Tuesday evening, they went at once to the recruiting sergeant's office. There, each man reaffirmed his intention to a list and the doctor was called for the medical examination. All through without a hitch. Then the Penticton people began to sit up and take notice. But when the boys stood out on the main street in front of the recruiting station and gave them an open-air concert and W.A. McLean delivered an address, their enthusiasm knew no bounds. The crowd which assembled quite filled the street and stopped all traffic. The spirit of the men was splendid and there was no thought or inclination for drink. They went down and had a good swim and enjoyed themselves till bedtime came, and those who were coming back came, arriving in the early hours of the morning. Headley has good reason to be proud of these fine brave fellows who are going to represent us in the greatest war in the history of the world. After the euphoria of the day, the reality set in of who was leaving their family and friends behind. Margaret Robertson saw her only boy join all the others on stage. Of the five Corrigan brothers in town a year before, now just two remained, and Thomas Knowles and Rob McDougall left behind brothers who would later also enlist. In an instant, Headley had lost its popular vocal group, three of the four members now enlisting. And Bert Schubert, who grew up with Headley, he was given up the chance to run his father's store. But as well as the young men and boys, there were some much older Headley folk joining, such as Edward or Joe Rotherham, whose brother Tommy was the town photographer. His age said 44 on enlistment, as did Yorkie Myers. Dan Devine, another 40-year-old, did not enlist for another six months. In all, 15 of the 17 would eventually be enlisted in the 54th Kootenay Battalion. This battalion had originally mobilised in Nelson, but was now recruiting in the southern interior. A new training and recruiting camp had been set up in Vernon in the North Okanagan, and it was here that the men started to arrive at the end of August and into September. Some had affairs to put in order, while two of them, Roy Corrigan and Bobby Robertson, were given special dispensation 
that allowed them to finish the baseball season. Amp Fern and the men were given medicals and completed their attestation papers, their enrolment papers. Most of the men were at first assigned to Company C, under the command of Captain Travers Lucas from Ontario. Their commanding officer was Lieutenant Colonel Kemble, an experienced ex-Indian Army officer. Very quickly, Alec Jack, who had prior military experience with the Cameroon Highlanders, found himself promoted and was soon shot sergeant. It was under the leadership of these men that the 54th would go into action a year later. At Vernon, the mostly civilian recruits were quickly introduced to army life. Uniforms were issued and the men started to learn manoeuvres and some drill. Some of the townsfolk of Headley visited one week and were much heartened by what they saw. The spirits of the men was excellent and to many it must have seemed like an adventure holiday. They were camping and exercising and having sporting contests like boxing, at which Yorkie surprisingly excelled. Yorkie further surprised everyone by getting married. His bride was Amy Campbell, whose father had owned a store in Headley some years before. Their happiness, though, was somewhat soured by a letter Sergeant Jack received from the now-named Headley Patriotic Fund. The money originally for machine guns was now going to be given to the soldiers and their dependents, but as Yorkie had got married after enlistment, his new wife was not to be included as a dependent. One day in October, all 1,000 men were paraded for a giant panoramic photo of the 54th Battalion in all its glory. There were a thousand men and a bear. Yes, that's right. The 54th had their own mascot, a little cub called Coots. He would, though, never sail to England, unlike the more famous bear mascot, Winnipeg, or Winnie, as she became known. The men were getting restless and wanted to sail for England too. But before that, something happened that would shape the Headley contingent. Tommy Corrigan, the popular young man who had the brain surgery at the Headley Hospital just over two years ago, was one of the young men who had enlisted. This was despite the objections of the medical officer, who writes on his medical record that this man was accepted into the army against his wishes, and that he was overruled by the medical board. Well, the medical officer was right, because while at Vernon, Tommy had his first seizure since the operation. He was taken to the Campbell Hospital, where doctors performed a second brain operation on him. The wound had not healed properly from the first, so they re-cleaned it and inserted a plate into his head and now closed it. This seemed to do the trick and he recovered sufficiently to go with the battalion when they then finally got their travel orders. In November, the 54th boarded a troop train to take them across Canada. The Headley ranks had been swelled by more volunteers. Throughout September and October, other men had enlisted. Men like the rancher Nigel Ewer or miner Arthur Martin, originally a Londoner. They embarked for England aboard the converted line of the Saxonia. It was not to be a pleasant cruise though. Yorkie's new wife, Amy, wrote to the Gazette to let Headley know about it. Headley Gazette, Thursday, January 6th, 1916. 54th Battalion enjoyed trip but were nearly starved. Yorkie's wife, Mrs Amy Mayer, writes to thank the people of Headley for kindness to the boys. Vernon, B.C., December 24th, 1915. To the editor, Headley Gazette. Dear Sir, In case you have not already received news of the boys of the 54th who left Headley, I thought perhaps some of your readers might like to hear something about them. I had a letter from my husband, whom you all know as Yorkie, and the battalion is to be at Bramshot Camp, Liphook, Hampshire. The 47th Battalion, from Vancouver, which was here last summer in Vernon, 
is also with him. There are about 15,000 men there altogether. It is rumored that the 54th are to go to Servia, though when, of course, is not known. I would like to be able to tell you that the boys enjoyed the trip, but thanks to grafting contractors, I'm sorry to say that the men who crossed in the Saxonia, who were offering their lives and services for the empire, were almost starved. The officers with the troops tried to fix the responsibility, but they found it impossible. The feeding of the troops seemed to have been let to private contractors. The contemptible hounds had covered their tracks too well. The boys had to buy all they got to eat on the boat. However, they are safely over, which is something to be thankful for. Grafters are like other vermin. They are there because they are there, and they're awfully hard to get rid of. But at times they get theirs, as the saying is. I'm glad to have known the nice things sent from Headley to the boys for Christmas. Wishing all the people of Headley a very happy New Year. I am, sir, yours truly, Amy Mayer. The nice things Amy referred to were the Christmas hampers sent to all the Headley soldiers from the people of Headley. These Christmas parcels were always well received and shared amongst themselves and their comrades. As Bobby Robertson wrote, Headley Gazette, January the 27th, 1916. Christmas hampers bring many words of thanks. We have great pleasure this week in publishing a letter from Private Bobby Robertson. He is in England and writes to express thanks to Headley and Nickel Plate people for the excellent hamper and the cheerful good wishes they sent, which arrived during the Christmas season. His letter is as follows. January the 1st, 1916. Editor, Gazette. I received the parcel okay. Many thanks. I hardly know how to thank the people of Headley. Tell Mrs. Sproul I got the Christmas pudding. It was fine. We had a lovely trip on the train, but oh, the boat. Think I will walk back. I don't believe I'll have the courage to get on a boat again. Thought I would be sick, but I wasn't. I was what they call in the army a mess orderly. Better known in BC, a hash slinger. We have lots of rain and mud in this country. I was up to London for five days and it sure is some place. Had a lovely time. Was through the Tower of London, also St John's Chapel. Nearly all the boys here have a bad cold. I remain as ever a Headleyite. Private R.W. Robertson. Mr C.P. Dalton is in receipt of letters from Arthur Freeman, C. Christiana, C. Saunders and Nigel Ewart also expressing their appreciation and asking him to thank the people of Headley and Nickelplate for their splendid parcels. Jack Howe and A.W. Jack have also been heard from and all likewise send their thanks for the hampers. The men are all very enthusiastic about their treatment, both at home and abroad, and we are sure will make a name for themselves and Headley before they return. 1916 was starting with hope and optimism, but by the year's end, all of that will be gone. Headley Boys was written, produced and presented by Andy English. Amy Mayer Letter, read by Kim English. Maple Leaf Forever, performed by Cindy Rigger in the Grace Church, Headley. <laughs>